Hello, welcome to another episode of the Beatles Books podcast with me, Joe Wisby. As you may or may not already know, you can find me on Instagram with the account at BooksBeatles, where I'm archiving and discussing my collection of Beatles books. I'm joined today by author and journalist Steve Turner to discuss his 2016 book, Beatles 66, Their Revolutionary Year. Steve Turner has spent his career chronicling and interviewing people from the worlds of music, film, television, fashion, art and literature. He regularly contributes to newspapers such as The Mail on Sunday and The Times and has written several books including two other renowned Beatles books, A Hard Day's Right and The Gospel According to the Beatles. The Beatles began 1966 as hysteria-inducing pop stars playing to audiences of screaming teenage fans and they ended it as musical sages considered responsible for ushering in a new era. Steve's book describes this transformative year by slowing down the action to investigate in detail the enormous changes that took place in the Beatles' lives and work during 1966. Steve Turner, hello and welcome to the Beatles Books podcast. So we're here to talk about um, Beatles 66. I suppose any year in the Beatles kind of career could warrant it, its own book. Uh, what was it about 1966 that attracted you and inspired you to write the book? I think it was because it was such um, the hinge in their career. There seems to be um, almost like before Revolver and before 1966 and then after. It, it, it embraced elements of their later career, you know, being um, musicians of the studio, but also they were still performing on stage. You know, there was a bit of the sort of beat music aspect to the Beatles at that point, but there was also that kind of like psychedelic experimental avant-garde thing going on as well. So it, if you if you did a book about 67 or 65, you probably, or certainly 64, you'd be talking about the sort of beat music era and uh, not exactly the cavern, but that kind of music you could dance to. And then if, if you did 68, then, then you're into a different era. So I thought it, um, it was that sort of cusp of the career and it had elements of both types of Beatles. Uh, so you're well known, obviously, for writing other books about the Beatles, uh, Hard Day's Riot, um, Gospel Corn to the Beatles. What kind of challenges yeah. did this book bring to you uh, as opposed to writing those other two books? I think it was the... Um... The historical sense of um, recreating a 12-month period and, and trying to find out what they were doing almost, uh, I mean, not in the book necessarily, but, but for my own uh, sense of, of what was happening, to know where they were sort of each day, you know, well, oh, Ringo's on holiday here and John's doing that. And at the same time, not, not just doing it series of news stories, but, but actually, you know, how, how each of, each member of the group was developing and then, you know, ultimately how, how that affected the Beatles and, 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 and their music. So yeah, it was the challenge of kind of recreating four diaries, if you like, you know, John, Paul, George and Ringo recreating their diaries for, for that year. You know, who, who were their best friends, who were their girlfriends or wives and what books were they reading? What music were they listening to? Where were they going on holiday? And um, I mean, we can see the end product, which is particularly Revolver but just, just finding out how their individual lives fed into that. I mean, it helped having done the, the previous book, like A Hard Day's Writing a Gospel According to the Beatles, because, you know, each time I do a book, I, I interview, you know, more people and new people. And then, but uh, then I can go back to the, 
to the transcripts of those earlier interviews and pick up things that are probably weren't central to, to the interview I was doing at the time, but have bearing on the new material. So the, the Beatles should have spent the first part of 1966 making a film. Um, they obviously, they done the previous two years that they'd given up a fair chunk of their diary to filming Hard Day's Night and, and Help. That doesn't happen in 1966. Two kind of questions around that. Why do you think that didn't happen? What were the kind of factors that stopped them from, from making another film? Uh, and what effect did all that kind of free time have on the four of them? It's funny because I, I wrote the book, um, you know, probably four four years ago or maybe longer than that. You, you start to forget sort of particular details, but I, I saw that was one of your questions. Um, I can't remember the exact details of why the film didn't happen, but I, but I suppose overall it was um, they were emerging, you know, they were becoming new t- a new kind of artist. And I don't know if there was a film that would accurately have captured what they were into at that point if they'd done some sort of jape or some sort of spoof on a spy movie it just wouldn't have worked that's where not where they were at that time mm. so um the, the fact that, that a film didn't happen or, or a suitable script didn't arrive it did, it did free them up it freed them up um obviously to write but also to, to travel and, and to go on holiday and uh to do stuff that they um hadn't had a lot of time to do in the, the past few years I mean, it must be um, a great blessing when you're in a situation like that and you suddenly find, boom, there's a, there's a hole in your diary. <laughs> because they, they were having to uh, to tour, um, to play on stage, to do television. And, you know, Brian Epstein would come in and say, you know, you've got to write a hit single by, you know, two weeks time or something like that. So there's an enormous amount of pressure doing, mm. doing several things at the same time. But even then, when they were doing Revolver, things were done. I mean, as they got towards the end of Revolver, they still were lacking a last song, for example. I mean, they were, they were writing as, as they were recording. Okay, so one, one of the things that does happen in the early part of 1966 is John's Maureen Cleave interview, uh, which obviously would have a lasting impact over the course of the year. You talk in your book about the book, The Passover Plot, which was a book I wasn't aware of until I, I read your book. What was the impact of, of that book on John's bigger than Jesus kind of comments in the Maureen Cleave interview? Yeah, Maureen Cleave was um, quite an important journalist um, for the Beatles. She was um, really smart, o- Oxbridge educated, attractive woman. And she, she met them in 1963 and wrote some of the first sort of really intelligent uh, pieces about, about the Beatles. And she was doing a series talking to each of the Beatles and Brian Epstein, one a week in the Evening Standard. Um, the interview with John got onto the subject of religion. I talked to her about it and she couldn't remember how, it, you know, the sequence of questions and answers, how it got onto religion. But it's possibly talking about books he'd been reading because she was down at his house in Weybridge and she could see books on his shelf. And um, there was a book called The Passover Plot, which was written by um, a guy who was a theologian and it, he speculated that Jesus wasn't actually the Messiah, the Son of God, but that he was familiar with the Old Testament prophecies that there was a Messiah going to come and thought he would fulfill these prophecies kind of off his own back. Mm. And because he, did, he didn't die and rise again, as, as in, in the Gospels. And the disciples, the writer portrayed him, them as sort of fairly gullible people that kind of went along with it. And um, I guess... I mean, that did have an influence on John and he, he certainly, um, I don't know if it was in, 
I think it might have been in that interview where, where he said the disciples were sort of thick. I think he used the word thick. Yeah. Um, and that seemed to be a direct um, comment on, on, on things that Schoenfeld had, had said in this book, The Passover Plot. So that, that's some of the background. And of course, the, um, when the interview was published in The Standard, it didn't really cause a fuss at all. It was then, um, it was printed in a Chicago newspaper, and I think even in the New York Times magazine, and again, no kerfuffle. But um, when the editor of Date Book, which was obviously a, like a teenage magazine, when he got hold of it, that's what caused the kerfuffle. What I learned from reading uh, the correspondence, he tried to kind of stir up this stuff. He, he, he knew that we more recently have called them shock jocks, who, who were known to like, uh, you know, cause a little bit of a, an uproar. And then, uh, you know, you, you got more listeners to your radio station. So that, that's, that's what happened. And, and I hadn't realized, or I don't think anybody realized how much of a hand Datebook had had in actually stirring up this stuff. It was, it was a very mild thing, but then when you got two guys, you know, encouraging people to burn records, then other radio stations thought, well, you know, we could benefit from this. And then it was a, like, if you didn't burn records, then were you tacitly supporting, uh, you know, the comments that John Lennon made. So it was, it was a kind of a storm in a teacup, but I think it had serious ramifications in that. Um, I think John in particular thought what, you know, possibly his life could be threatened. I mean, mm. it was a different era to now, but even, even now you would think even more, there might be like a lone assassin. Yeah. So when they were in Memphis and there was um, somebody threw a firecracker and there was a loud bang, uh, you know, the group thought, well, is it, you know, is that it? Yeah. Um, so you also write in detail about Paul's involvement with Indica Gallery and the kind of avant-garde world that he sort of submerged himself in, particularly in uh, over the course of 1966. What do you think attracted Paul to this this world? The other three weren't as kind of struck with it. Um, and, and how deep was his involvement? Was it just for a photo opportunity? Or was it, do you think he was really interested in a, a lot of this kind of avant-garde stuff? I think he was interested in the avant-garde stuff. I think he was, um, you know, he's like a really bright grammar school boy. He probably would have gone on to university or gone on to be a teacher or something like that. Um, I remember Tony Barrow, who was the Beatles publicist in the early days, saying to me that um, he thought the reason, for example, they got interested in the Maharishi and, and Eastern religion and things like that was during the years when their contemporaries probably would have been away at university and experimenting and being introduced to a whole range of ideas they were on tour you know, mm. having a different set of experiences but basically not learning in the same way that their contemporaries were and they i think they reached a period when they suddenly realized their lack of knowledge the lack of sort of book knowledge and uh, things like that and um there was an interview paul did in rave magazine in 1966 where he's talking to alan freeman and he said you know, we're 25 or 26 or whatever they were then. And you realize you only got like 50 years left and you've got so much to read and so many plays to see. So he, he had that great urge to learn. And he, he'd gone to live with the Asher family, Jane Asher's family uh, in, in Wimpole Street. And uh, that introduced him to, you know, medicine and sort of serious talks about plays and movies. And, and he, he was genuinely stimulated by that, that sort of stuff. I mean, he's not, I think what people find hard is that he's not the, you would associate John with the avant-garde. You think he's kind of wild and, uh, you know, willing to take a risk and Paul's more conservative. But 
I think Paul would take wilder things and make, you know, he writes Eleanor Rigby during this period, which is not a, a wild song, but it's a different song for the mm. Beatles. And I think it, it opened up many possibilities for Paul. Whereas John used to say, um, used to make people laugh by saying avant-garde is French for bullshit, which is, uh, I mean, Paul, he talked in an interview with London Life magazine in 1965 about like not wanting to get stuck in a rut. Uh, he could see the potential that they knew how to write hit songs and they could keep writing hit songs like the writers for the monkeys would do. Mm. But um, he wanted to take risks. And now we look back and think we can, you can see the kind of commercial effect of, of them taking risks was, you know, was good for them. But at the time, I don't think it appeared like that. They thought, you know, if we don't keep writing hit songs in that formulaic way, we could lose our audience, but they took that risk. I mean, Rubber Soul Revolver weren't commercial in the, in the old sense, like a Hard Day's Night album was commercial. Mm. But, but they thankfully took the risks. And I think Paul was, was a lot to do with that. Mm. I, think, I think he was, uh, to get back to your question, I think he was very interested in all the stuff that, like, particularly Barry Miles, who, who was connected with the Indica bookshop and, and had great connections with the beat writers in America. I think he was genuinely inspired by, by that stuff. But he never wrote like Allen Ginsberg or Gregory Corso. He, he never wrote in a particularly avant-garde way. But, mm. it, but, it, but it shook up his thinking, created new things. Mm. So speaking of risks and the shaking up of thinking, we, we should talk about Revolver itself. Um, they start to record it in, over the course of April, May and into June. Did you get a sense from writing the book of these recording sessions for Revolver being different from the sessions that have gone previously, what did you kind of find out about those those sessions? I mean, and also Revolver's now seen as their, their best album, certainly one of their, yeah. their strongest albums. Did writing the book kind of reaffirm that view for yourself or, or change that view in any way? Things happened so quickly for the Beatles. I mean, they recorded their first album in a day in 63. Mm. And, you know, we're only three years later. And they're just sort of album by album, they're spending more, more time on it. And, and they're, they're saying, well, could you do that? And could you... Nothing seemed too wild to do because they knew George Martin would, would understand what, what they meant. Doing Tomorrow Never Knows, you know, he said, I want to sound like a, like a Tibetan Lama. And, and they thought about things like, um, you know, like having the microphone suspended from the ceiling and no, nothing was... was too sort of wild or, or, or out of bounds. And, and they didn't feel sort of constricted by having to write 10 songs that you could perform in a club and, and people would scream and jump up and down and, or, or, mm. or in a concert hall. They, they were writing more for themselves and more as a, as a performance. Most of the songs, I mean, subsequently Paul's done a lot, a lot of those songs on tours, but at the time, it seemed impossible to think that you could do something like even like Eleanor Rigby on, on stage because, you know, those synthesizers that you, you could get on stage in those days. And so um, I think that was the, the biggest change. Mm. Where does it rank in your list, Revolver? Is it, is it one of your favourites? Yeah, def- definitely one of my favourites. Probably, probably my favourite. Uh, there's something a little bit maybe artificial about um, Sergeant Pepper. It seems more like... Um, like writing a radio musical or something like that, like a very self-conscious. As I said earlier on, I, th- I think Revolver still has highly sophisticated beat music, if you like. You know, from remembering the era myself, it just seemed to be a 
perfect summary of, of what was going on in, in that period. By June, they undertake what would turn out to be their final tour. Um, they, they start in Germany and then on to Japan and the fabled trip to the Philippines. How different an experience do you think was this tour to the, the previous world tours that they'd undertaken in, in 64 and, and 65? I mean, it, it's seen now as a, a kind of a chaotic, um, slightly sour maybe experience. Do you think that's, that's accurate from what you found out for the book? Well, certainly by the time they got to the Philippines, it, it, had, it had soured because you had a lot of sort of politics kicking in. And, um, you know, that w- when they left, they were jostled at the airport and threatened. And they were really quite frightened uh, uh, at that point. I think, um, well, be- because on, on the American part of the tour, the, the were, um, because of the Jesus comments, there were, um, they, they felt a little bit threatened because of that. And then the final gig. I, I, I mean, it seemed to me so apt that they played in a cage in the middle of a field. You know, I mean, there could be nothing further removed from the spirit that um, started the Beatles, which was them being more or less face-to-face with the people that they were writing the songs for. And, and then they would hang out with the fans afterwards. I mean, that, that was really the, the heart of what made the Beatles and, and now they're standing in a cage in a field in San Francisco and a, you know, a baseball pitch and, and they fly into San Francisco. They don't even get to look around. Cause I, I thought it'd be interesting if they, they'd looked around and seen some of the emerging sort of hippie culture, but they, they didn't even have a chance to do that. You know, they flew in and, and then they flew out. They met Joan Byers backstage and uh, mm. Joan Byers' sister, Mimi Farina and uh, people like that. But uh, yeah, it was basically in and out and, and, and that's when George ended up saying, I'm no longer a Beatle. He, he was conscious that, that, that the music that, that he loved and that he worked hard at was, was just not being, literally not being heard by the audience. There's was, was just too many screams. Mm. So there was no incentive to want to do better. Mm. The Philippines uh, trip, obviously, as, as I said, is, is, is pretty fabled. What was the, the kind of the real reason, do you think, for them experiencing what was quite a violent exit from what, what the book kind of describes? Was it just the fact that they kind of snubbed um, Marcos or do you think there was anything, any other political uh, kind of events going on there? I think they, um, I mean, the, the Beatles were, were a threat to anybody who had a, a very authoritarian system of government. You, you saw that in Russia, you know, that, Kids couldn't understand what the Beatles were singing about. And in fact, you know, the Beatles weren't saying, throw off your chains. And, and I think there were, um, there were people in the Philippines, which was quite regimented, that, that thought that, that the Beatles were fostering some sort of abandonment and do things your own way, which, which they, they were in a way. But, mm. but they, they felt very threatened by that. The um, point in the American tour where John has to sit down at a, a press conference and apologize for the, yeah. the comments that, that we discussed earlier. I mean, that that's quite out of character. You know, I imagine that that was done under some duress maybe from, from Brian and maybe even the, the other three. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. Do you think it was those, that kind of experience that, that contributed to them stopping touring? Obviously you mentioned George was unhappy anyway. Do you think they ever, there was any ever, a chance of them doing any any further tours through 67? Uh, was it this that kind of made up their minds to, to stop touring? 
I think it was an accumulation of of events. You know, I talked earlier about the fact that they thought the music they now wanted to create, they could, couldn't reproduce on stage. I mean, John felt, he felt very upset by the upset he'd caused. And, and Tony Barrow told me that, that he actually cried when they were in the hotel in Chicago. And uh, I think he felt, he felt he'd let all his, like his fellow band members down, that they, they'd created this wonderful thing and, and that he'd done something that was threatening the existence of the group. So I think he was very, was very cut up about that. I mean, he's not somebody to go back on what he said. And he tried to very patiently explain, which is true, that he wasn't saying, uh, in his view, the Beatles were better than Jesus. He was just, he was almost, Maureen Cleave said to me, like, the Americans don't get irony. I think that that's true to a great extent. Like, he, he was saying, you know, we're four guys playing music and we seem to be more popular than Jesus. You know, the church going and going down and the mm. figures for concert attendances are going up. And I think if a vicar had said it, then uh, it would have been taken a completely different way. But, but he was aware that that, that had upset a lot of people. And uh, no, I just, I don't think it was that one thing, but it was, you know, the Philippines, it was America reproduced their sound on stage and, and their, um, I think starting to view their music as something like a classical composer would, would, would view it, like to, to create mm. a sound. So using the studio as, a, as, a, as an instrument, I think that, that became more important to them. You mentioned in the book a little bit about your interview with John in the early 70s. Um, he, he, spoke a bit about, he spoke a bit about religion, didn't he? And then, do you, do you think he, he was kind of, did you get the impression when you were with him that he was kind of haunted by that comment or do you think he kind of stood by it to a, to a certain extent? I don't think it was the comment. I think he was, he was, in, he was in many ways quite a, um, I would say a religious person, but he was a person to whom religion meant quite a lot. Uh, when I did the gospel according to the, the Beatles, uh, I was surprised the the sort of depth of his church connections and his Sunday school training and stuff like that, which his contemporaries told me about, you know, people that went to Sunday school with him. Mm. And he went right up to sort of confirmation or the, there were quite a few of them that went to, to Sunday school until, or, or church until the age of 16. And then as soon as they went out to work, it kind of all ended. That, that was fairly typical. But John, in almost all of his interviews, you, you see he kind of used his phrases from Bible stories or allusions to Bible stories. So I think it kind of bothered him. He'd keep coming back to this. And, and there was some time when he was at Apple, when, he, when he, he told the fellow Beatles that he was Christ come back to earth. You know, mm. I think he'd taken a bit of acid, so they, they kind of uh, you know, didn't take him all that seriously. But then I'm in the same room, presumably, or where he'd made that claim that um, I'm interviewing him. And, uh, and he went, I, I was talking to him and Yoko, and then he goes across the room and looking at mail. And uh, this paper had been sent to him by some Jesus people in, in America. And there was a, like an open letter to, to, to John Lennon by somebody who'd become a Christian. And they said, you know, we've always identified with you. I've climbed many mountains with you. And but now I've discovered Jesus and I can see by your eyes that you don't know him. And, mm. and John read that out to me. And uh, I think he thought I'd say, you know, what an idiot. And I said, well, what do you think about that? And he just sort of carried on, but it was, um, so I think it continued to, to bother him. And there was some period I found when I did the Beatles, gospel according to the Beatles, that, that John had had some 
experience after seeing Jesus of Nazareth, the Zeffirelli film in, in the 19, what would it be, 1970s. Mm. Uh, that had had a, an, an impact on him. He started to write some sort of religious songs, but then Yoko had jumped in and tried to sort of correct him and uh, that didn't emerge again. Interesting. And he think... said to um, David Sheff in that final Playboy interview, he said, I'm a most religious fellow. I think by that he meant that he, he was concerned by uh, religious ideas. He, he read quite widely in religion. That was one of his favourite topics. Obviously, George, in, interesting George, kind of yeah. counterpoint there, is George moved away from the church, presumably. You know, obviously it, it would have been around when he was a kid, but he's attracted to an entirely different kind of creed, yeah. isn't he? Which yeah. I think is an interesting kind of comparison to John, maybe. Yeah, George had um, a Catholic um, upbringing through his mother. He he was always disappointed that people kind of went on a Sunday and, and it was all very religious. And then on Monday, it had all gone, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And what struck him about India was um, where he first goes to India for an extended period of time in 1966, which is another reason what, that made 1966 an interesting year. You know, he studied with Ravi Shankar and he, he saw that... Um, religion in india is pervasive it, it affects like the way you eat and the way you dress and the rituals and it, it seems to um pervade the whole of life and, and that was attractive to him john was you know he's kind of partially interested but because he turned on on the maharishi towards the end of that trip and then he yeah he wasn't attracted in the same way as george as we kind of move toward the end of our our conversation, the, the Beatles end 1966 after a, a much needed break where, you know, as the majority of listeners will know, Paul works on Family Way, John films How I Won the War, uh, George, as you say, goes to India, Ringo yeah. goes, quite lovely, I think Ringo goes out to Spain to just hang out with John, which I think is uh, just, just, just a lovely kind of friendship thing there. Um, uh, possibly because Ringo didn't have much else to, to do. Um, and of course, then they come back and the end of the year, they start to record Sergeant Pepper. Um, I, I was wondering what you kind of got from writing the book, how different they were as a group at, at this point, at the end of 66, from what they were at the start of 66 how much do you think they changed as, as individuals by this time they start to record Sgt. Pepper? I think they changed in that um, they'd, I think they were trying to find themselves. You know, they, they had this identity as what Mick Jagger called the four headed monster. You know, they were, they were together. They uh, wore pretty much the same clothes. And, uh, and I guess that kind of niggled them after a while because they realized they had, you know, independent thoughts and, um, we're trying to kind of find their way, really. You know, am I really an actor? Have I got any potential as an actor? And, uh, uh, you know, in Paul's case, could I be writing film music? I think they were trying to sort of flex their artistic muscles and, and find out who they were. And they'd struck up new relationships. And because um, this is when uh, John meets Yoko, of course, and, uh, and also George and Patty get married. So there's a lot of changes going on in their life. And, and I think they're just, you know, John gets his hair cut for the movie. That was quite a big thing at the time, you know, because the hair was the thing and uh, to, to chop it all off. John must have felt quite sort of naked because he'd, he'd been Beatle John for so many years. Mm. And to, to ha it's quite a brave thing to do to chop it all off like that. 
So I, I think they were, um, they were exploring their own identities. Do you think, who do you think changed the most over the, the course of the year? Do you, do you think that, oh, do you think, um, uh, I, I think John probably, I mean, for me, I think John and Paul have their own kind of journey, so we said, but I think maybe it, it might be George. I think George at the start of 65, you get the sense he's still kind of happy, sort of existing as a Beatle, but as you say, the hell, you know, the hellishness of the tour, meeting Ravi, etc. Maybe yeah. it's George. I'm obviously, I'm, I'm not sure what you feel. Yeah, it's changed in different ways. I mean, I've never thought of it in that way, but um, I think Paul just went more deeply into the range of interests that, that he was starting to develop. I, I guess George took more of a sharp left turn in, in the sense that um, after discovering the sitar on, on the set of Help, he, he became you know, kind of interested in, in Eastern music. And Ringo pretty much jollies along at the same level. John meet, meeting Yoko, that, that's again for him, that was his sharp left turn, I guess. You know, mm. he, he'd um, become interested in, in the avant-garde arts. And she was, the thing I did notice when I talked to them together for the interview was that he, he seemed to be enthralled to her. He, he was boosting her all the time. He just very much seemed to, I say worship her, but, but almost, yeah. You know, like he, he really thought she was to be his knees. When I was with Paul and Linda, yeah. in a different way, Paul championed Linda to an incredible degree. He, he thought she was the greatest photographer in the world. And it was, it was lovely to see. He just slightly different with John. I think he, I don't think Paul wanted to sit at the feet of Linda and, and learn how she saw life in, in quite the same way as John wanted. I think he more or less wanted to sit at Yoko's feet and, and learn how she saw life. You worked on the Linda photographs book, didn't you? Yeah. I was quite a privilege for somebody like me because I, I was so into the Beatles work and everything. And then so to, to spend time with Paul and go down the home and, and stuff like that was, uh, you know, felt like a great privilege. Um, Linda was, was really easy to get on with for me. She's just, so the first day I met her down at the, their home in Sussex, um, she, the housekeeper let me in and Linda was out riding and it was raining and Linda came in. She had some, jacket on or something and her hair was completely plastered to a scalp because it was wet and most celebs wouldn't want you to see them in that condition she i got asked to do the project um i was called up and they the company the publisher said uh we've got somebody who's done a book and they're a photographer and very you know they're not confident in writing themselves but they want to work with a writer and keep me in touch and then they got back and they said well you know photographer that that uh, wants somebody to work with they, they said it's linda mccartney Excellent. so it was good like to go down to the studio you know the windmill um to the home um uh, another time i i had to go down to the farm had breakfast with paul and linda and then uh that's the only kind of time she could find was the the, the journey from their home to london so uh we did one of our long interviews that way but um you know, Paul was very complimentary about the book. I, I guess he still does it, but MPL used to put on a party every year for those people that had worked for M MPL during that year. And it was at a hotel down in, in Sussex and they had a huge marquee uh, you know, built onto the, extending the, the back of the hotel and we all sat down. And the invite was to me, my wife and my kids. Wow. And you don't often get that. You know, people, they don't acknowledge that you've got a family. So we were all <laughs> invited down. 
all the kids were treated to an entertainer and, and different things. Um, and we sat at this table and then Paul and Linda came in and there were all these people, hundreds of them, and they came and sat at our table, which was wonderful. <laughs> wow. We could carry on talking about the Beatles for hours, Steve, but unfortunately, yeah. uh, time is, is alas, a, a, against us. Um, so, yeah, if I could just, just end by uh, thanking you for your time. Um, one last question. When I told some of my fellow Beatle maniacs, I suppose, that I was going to be speaking to you, they, they did ask me to ask if uh, you were working on any uh, forthcoming projects beetle related or not um no um not 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 beatles related but um i've got um i've been working on a sort of a memoir i don't know how what direction that's going to go on but that that would obviously have my uh the things i've been talking to you about today would would come into that um i'm doing a book about i'm working on a book about the um the effect of the beat writers, the beat generation on rock music as well. Okay. Um, so think things like that, but no, nothing. Like, is there another Beatles book to be written? <laughs> <laughs> I'd be interested to see the one that Paul's doing with, with Paul Muldoon to see if he comes up with anything that I wasn't aware of. Yeah. It's kind of annoying for writers of Beatles books that um, you see other people come out with Beatles books and, and they're, they're kind of making capital out of your, your discoveries, you know, like there was a thing about Craig Brown's book in the mail on Sunday, I think it was all the, all the daily mail. And they mentioned the the story about she's leaving home and Melanie Coe and finding that Melanie Coe had, had been at ready, steady go and had met Paul and all that business, which is what I um, found out. I was the first person to find that out, but fair enough. You put the facts out there and they become uh, material for other people but but sometimes like the gospel according to the Beatles I really uh, I, I love writing that but the, I think there were stories in that that um, probably didn't get as much attention at the, at the time because mm. of my book they turn up in other people's books and the first time that, that John and Paul to uh, sorry John and George took acid and stuff like that you know to I think I was the first person to mention the name of the, the dentist and all that stuff there you go there you go okay well I'll, I'll let you go now steve thanks so much for your time great <laughs>